You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading is Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12 through the end of chapter 2. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil." Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten." How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. 
I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word. Help us now, we pray. Lift our eyes from the things of this world and fix them firmly onto Christ, we pray. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe seated. This is a uh, torch week. So if you're a fourth through a sixth grader, you want to go hang out and talk about this passage with Gail and Patrick, you can follow them out right now. Last week, we introduced this book, and thanks, Karen, for that marathon reading. Uh, she needs an energy bar or something now. Uh, if, you're, if, you, if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to maybe go catch that podcast. It was a, if you don't understand the first half of chapter one, I don't think you're going to understand the whole book. So we're not going to go back and rehash that all tonight. Uh, but if you're new with us, this is your first week in joining us, the, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you just open the Bible, it's about halfway right in that middle of the book, uh, you'll find Psalms and then go over two books, Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter one. Uh, we saw last week that there is nothing new under the sun. Everything today is the same as it has always been. And then it is just here, gone, and forgotten. This word vanity gets used over and over and over. The, the Hebrew word of hevel. It's like the, the vapor that comes out of your mouth on a cool December morning. It's just there, you see it, and then it's gone and forgotten. And this is all of life. Vapor of vapor, vanity of vanities. Well, today, as we keep moving through chapter 1 and then through chapter 2, the preacher then begins to reflect on if that is true. If all of reality is vapor of vapor, here, gone, and forgotten, then what's the point? What is the meaning of life? Is there any meaning in life? Is there any meaning in my existence? The preacher is going to turn the attention of his heart now to a lot of things, a lot of things that he can touch and see so that he might find something to anchor his vapor life to, some sort of security in so this evening, we're going to try to th answer three questions that the preacher is going to ask, as we've just heard read. Does wisdom satisfy? Does pleasure satisfy? And then will anything satisfy? So we'll think through this tonight. Three questions. First of all, does wisdom satisfy? So we heard read at the very beginning of what Karen read in, in verses 12 through 18. 
the preacher just kind of sits down to think. And it's more than he's just like sitting down and thinking on like a rainy day at a coffee shop or something. He, this is like he's really struggling. It's not just him reflecting on life and meaning or whatever. He's really come to like an existential crisis. It's like he's like walked into his bedroom. He's like taken off his backpack. He falls onto this bed and then he just stares at the ceiling for a few hours. Like he's really come to a place of difficulty here. What's the point? What is the meaning of my life? Is there any meaning at all? So he reflects upon his life. Now, brief reminder, what we said last week, it doesn't ultimately matter, but I don't think that this book, Ecclesiastes, was written by Solomon, the historical Solomon, but it's like a preacher to the nation of Judah during or after their exile in Judah. He's likely using this common literary device of becoming, putting on a famous character in history and then walking into the reality, writing as if it's him. So like we said last week, if Solomon, the richest and wisest person in certainly the history of Israel, but perhaps even the history of the world, couldn't live a satisfied life, then we all need help. So what does the preacher say, reflecting as if he's Solomon? In his wisdom, he begins to reflect on everything in existence and realizes that it's vapor. Life in this world, life under the sun, is an unhappy business, we see. And finding and understanding something of lasting meaning under the sun is like trying to catch the wind in a trash bag. Pointless and impossible. And not only that, but he realizes, verse 15, that the world is crooked and it can't be made straight. There's so much evil and corruption in this world that it's almost too much for him to bear. Not only is finding and understanding something of lasting meaning pointless and impossible, but understanding the world to be the way it is, it's not just like trying to catch the, the wind on like an April day in Albuquerque. It's like trying to go out and catch a tornado, something that is twisted, that is crooked, and ultimately dangerous is this world as it is. We'll consider this more in chapter 6. Remember what we said the whole book of Ecclesiastes comes to us in like a wad of Christmas lights. We're going to see these themes uh, revisited and reiterated throughout this book. But just like turn on the news tonight, right? Like it will make you want to go into your bedroom, close the door, and stare at the ceiling for a few hours. Like what in the world is going on? Like story after story after story from like local neighborhoods to federal governments. The world is just full of wickedness of injustice. The crooked cannot be made straight. And yet, the preacher reflects that I have acquired more wisdom than anyone in the world. So even though the world is this crooked, ridiculous place out there that seems to have no meaning at all, perhaps I could live a meaningful and satisfied life in here. Though the outside is completely crooked, completely without meaning, maybe I can move to within. And find some meaning. So verse 17, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. The more you know, the more it hurts. Like my four-year-old Bennett, he he doesn't know about global terrorism. Skylar, this fly has found me again. Uh, before the service. It just wouldn't leave. And so just, we'll get used to it. We'll all get used to this fly. My four-year-old does not know about global terrorism. Like he knows some of the words of difficulty in the world. Like he, I think he knows what cancer is, but he doesn't know 
what cancer is. He doesn't know and understand about depression. He doesn't know about famine or poverty or disease. He doesn't like, after 20 minutes of playing with trains, he doesn't reflect upon the meaning of all of that. Like, did that carry, that 20 minutes of trains, did it carry much lasting eternal impact? No, he doesn't think about those things, but he will. He will as he grows older. Often, the more you reflect, the more you find that you don't like. This isn't universally true, but do you or did you, if you went to, went to college, did you find that like the philosophy majors that you knew were like the most brooding and depressed people that you've ever met? Right? Like, I think a few of you were these philosophy majors or are philosophy majors. I'd like to come meet you if you live a joyful life. Uh, but uh, it could be that the people who think philosophically are more inclined beforehand, uh, they're more bent towards cynicism. They're more bent towards a lack of joy. But I don't think that's the case. I think it's more likely that people who think philosophically about like existential meaning and purpose, they just kind of get out to the end of the rope. It's like they're like floating out from the space shuttle or the space station and they're tethered out there. And then the more that they think about these deep questions of existence and meaning, you get out to the end of the tether and you just look out to the dark void and think, well, there's no meaning. And then that makes me depressed and I brood a lot. Well, the preacher concludes that even the pursuit of wisdom then, it'll take you out to the end of the tether and it'll just bring you out to stare into the void. Now, we'll come back to this in the second half of chapter 2 because his conclusion in all this is certainly not, therefore, don't pursue wisdom. But for now, it's as if he's lying on his back and he's looking on the ceiling and he, at the ceiling and he decides, no, like, the pursuit of wisdom cannot be the thing that anchors me, that gives some sense of secure foundation to this hevel and vapor life. Because often it has the opposite effect. It just makes me more depressed it makes me less anchored. So maybe something else will do the trick. Maybe something else can give me lasting meaning and security. Let me think through some other things that I, the Solomon character, have experienced or enjoyed. Now our second point. Can pleasure satisfy? Verse 1, chapter 2, he says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So how is he going to seek after pleasure? Six ways. Six ways that he's going to think through and describe here, all trying to find some sort of meaning, satisfaction, security. Entertainment, alcohol, nature, money and possessions, music and art, and sex. So let's walk through all six of these things to see if pleasure can satisfy him. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Like we are a culture of laughing and distraction. Like hilarious cat video after hilarious cat video on YouTube. Sitcom after sitcom that just now Netflix will start one after the other for us. Don't hear me wrong, laughing is great, comedy is great. I love funny sitcoms. But consider what Blaise Pascal wrote in 1670. This is before the time of cat videos. Uh, he says, the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. Nothing is so unbearable for a man as to be in complete repose, without passions, without business, without distraction, without application. Then he feels his nothingness, 
his abandonment, his insufficiency, his dependence, his impotence, his emptiness. Incontinent from the depths of his soul, there will arise boredom, melancholy, sadness, sorrow, spite, and despair. Like, do you get what the, the full implications of what he's getting at is? Like, the reason that you reach for your phone when you're, st- you're sitting for like 25 seconds at the red light is because you don't want to think about the fact that you're going to die. <laughs> like, seriously, right? Like, 25 seconds at a time where you have to inwardly reflect and think in silence, in boredom. I can't have that, so I have to check if anyone has posted anything on Instagram for 20 seconds at a time. A few years ago on the Hidden Brain podcast, one of my favorites, I heard about a study in which people were left in a room with nothing to do. They weren't given a book, they weren't given a cell phone, no Instagram, no Facebook. They only had their thoughts for 15 minutes. And even though every single participant who participated in this study had previously stated that they would pay money to avoid being or experiencing uh, shock with electricity, for 15 minutes they were put in a room with nothing but a button And if they chose to push this button, it would shock them with electricity. 67% of males and a quarter of all females would choose to push the button because they were so bored for 15 minutes that they had to fill the void with something. Now, just as at one end of the spectrum is the philosophy major who can only think about existential meaninglessness, I think the majority of our culture and society has now swung to this side, where we are, like we would rather feel pain, physical pain, than to think and reflect and wonder about why I'm here at all. To think about my death. Pascal and the preacher show us that while we may have more ways to be distracted today, human beings have always been this way. Like, I think if I can just turn on the TV and laugh for 22 minutes at a time, or 25 seconds of Instagram at a time, then I'll feel better about my day. I'll be distracted a little bit with the reality that I hate my job. Or that I'll be distracted just a little bit that everyone is just really mean at school or at work. Or that the cancer treatments aren't working. Or that my life is just terrible. But in the end, like no amount of totally not funny Big Bang Theory episodes or very funny Parks and Rec episodes like will actually answer these questions of existence, right? They'll distract. These sitcoms or cat videos can be like a laugh track superimposed in our life to make us think that something is funny when it's actually not. But they will not answer our questions of meaning and eternity. So laughter can't do it. He turns his attention elsewhere to alcohol. Verse 3, I search my heart, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, just as there isn't anything inherently sinful, anything inherently wrong or evil about laughing, there's nothing inherently sinful or wrong or evil about alcohol. Unless you're not 21, then it is most assuredly sinful for you to break the law. But with jokes and with alcohol and really what everything else we'll talk about this evening, it becomes a problem when we make good things into ultimate things. 
When we worship the good things that God gives us rather than the God who gives them. So in just as with laughing, we use alcohol or any other kind of drug or substance for that matter to make or to mask a sense of meaningless, meaninglessness in my life. To mask the sorrow, the, the frustration, the pain, the self, self-loathing, the guilt. Perhaps you've been up close and personal and observing someone who uses alcohol or any other kinds of drugs for this kind of distraction, perhaps even for medicating psychological pain. Perhaps you've been in a place where you have used substances like these. Perhaps you are even now. Perhaps it can be true of you, even if it's been years since you've been high or drunk. Quarterly, our our pastors, we go through a pretty thorough accountability process. And one of the many questions that we ask each other isn't, have you gotten drunk in the past several months? But does alcohol have any significant grip on your life? Meaning, do I like really, really look forward to getting home to have a cold one or to have that glass of wine so that it'll like take the edge off? That's got a grip on my life, even if I'm not technically getting drunk. Because here's the thing about alcohol or about marijuana or any other kind of substance. It's never able to do what you want it to do. Like it can for like an hour or two or three But what you want it to do is to give you peace, to give you, to anchor you in the heaviness, the vaporness of your life. And you can never get drunk enough or high enough to find the meaning that we're looking for. The effects of that glass of wine, that shot of whiskey, that puff on the joint, they're just hevel. They're here and gone, demanding that we just come back to them over and over and over again. Day after day, or week after week, or month after month. They're cruel taskmasters. They can't do what you want them to do. These are just a different way of us superimposing some laugh track in our life to distract us from our existential dread, our coming death. So he keeps moving. How about nature? Verse 4 I made great works, I built, I built houses planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them and all, planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Like, this guy, he, he realizes that there's something great, something wonderful about nature. There's a reason why people are drawn towards wanting to go vacation at the beach or in the mountains. Like, unless you have family there, no one's planning a vacation to Des Moines. Uh, Sorry, I'm really sorry for you Iowans. Uh, But the reason is, is that we, like even if we don't explicitly acknowledge it, we want to see majesty. We want to see God. Romans 1 tells us that all humans know of God's existence by just looking around. And when we can see the magnificent, when we see beauty, we see his power displayed in created things. And what is beauty if All that the earth and the universe is, is just a collection of molecules come to us by billions of years of time and chance. It's nothing. It is just a collection of molecules. There's no such thing as beauty if God is not there. But we humans, we intuitively know better. We seek out the beautiful and the majestic. The problem becomes, just like with entertainment and alcohol, when we make nature itself the thing to give us meaning. 
which is especially foolish if you really think about it because nature wants to kill you, right? If I didn't have a high view of God's sovereignty and providence, I would conclude that the universe is actually conspiring to destroy me and to destroy all of us, whether from like microscopic virus and bacteria or like snakes and spiders and lions or even like tsunamis and tornadoes or asteroids. The universe wants to destroy you. So finding that thing to be like the, the, the greatest sense of anchoring security seems foolish. While going on hikes and camping trips is fun, the camping trip wants to kill you. So we should go on hikes. We should, we should go camping. As Christians though, we understand our role and job as stewards of creation. And we ought to be, as Christians, the most ecologically minded people on the planet. Matt Jones is slowly getting me to give up my plastic straws. One plastic straw at a time. We should plant trees. We should mow our lawns. We should recycle our trash, beautify parks. We should go out and enjoy the wilderness. But nature in and of itself cannot anchor your soul. If anything, like philosophy, going too far out onto the tether and observing the seeming meaninglessness of nature, it's likely that you'll come to some pretty dark conclusions. So the Solomon character is like swinging and missing all over the place. He can't find anything. What about money and possessions? Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house, and I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Since we'll undoubtedly talk through the Bible's understanding and treatment of slavery as it pops up over and over again in many other books, let's not get slowed down on that tonight. Uh, we can just note that God is not condoning slavery here in this passage. We know that because like, the preacher has just talked about abusing wine, and he's going to, in just a second, talk about like getting concubines and stuff. So he's not doing this in righteousness. But for our use now, the Solomon character lumps his slaves into his enormous wealth which includes more herds and flocks and gold and silver than anyone in the history of Israel. Maybe the world. And yet, still, he wants and needs more and more and more. Like, it doesn't matter how many times we read Ecclesiastes 2. It doesn't matter how many times we watch the Christmas carol. It doesn't matter how many times we hear of another celebrity who has just committed suicide or has ended up in rehab. It doesn't matter how many times you hear me say or you read Jim Carrey saying, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so that they will know that it's not the answer. It doesn't matter how many times we are still persuaded that the answer to our unhappiness is to just get more stuff or better stuff. I'm not happy now, but if I got a raise, I would. I'm not happy now, but if I had a nicer car, I would. Or if I had a bigger house, I would. Like, we're all guilty of this. And I often just find myself for no reason at all, like opening the Trulia or Zillow app, just to see what houses are out there. And all that it does is just make me discontent from my house that I currently have, right? I just like, it's like part of my nature to want to become discontent in the things that I have. Again, don't hear me wrong in this. It's not always wrong to, to buy a bigger house or a nicer car. The problem is that when 
we allow good things to become ultimate things. When they become, I'd be happy if things. Because as soon as you buy anything, there will always be something better or nicer. Like you buy a house and like one week into your new house, you go over to another friend's house that's better and nicer than yours. You're like, oh man, my new house that I thought was going to make me happy. It really just, it shows that it didn't, right? Or a week in your new car and there's a newer one. Or there's always nicer clothes or a newer iPhone. None of us have ever made a purchase and none of us ever will where we think and we actually believe there it is. Now I'm happy. I can, I can die in peace now. We'll, we'll never make that kind of purchase. So jokes won't do it. Entertainment, alcohol, nature, money and possessions, maybe music and art. That'll do the trick, Solomon thinks. He, in verse 8, he gets singers. He gets men and women singers. Now, we've got some really talented musicians in our church, as you've seen, as you've been led in. And we also have some really cool hipster folk in our church with, shall we say, refined or obnoxious tastes in music, myself included. Uh, but while music, again, is a gift of the Lord and honors and glorifies God, we can often fall victim in placing too high of an importance on it. Like this album will just change the way that you think about reality, man. Uh, and it changes like six minutes of your life. Uh, like the, that concert was changed my life. That artist is my everything. Well, my guess is, is that the Solomon character is basically bringing in like the musical equivalent of like Cardi B or Drake or somebody uh, or whatever like the One Direction or NSYNC or Bon Jovi or the Monkees were of your generation. Like pop singers and musicians who help us just forget our real life problems. No different than sitcoms. I don't think I have to work very hard to persuade you that Cardi B or the Monkees can bring you lasting meaning. Uh, but here's the thing. Like, Neil Young or John Lennon or Beethoven can't either. The problem is, even with, or maybe especially with, the most deep and philosophical musical artists, songwriters, is that it does the same thing as philosophy. More knowledge, more reflection, more sorrow. Praise the Lord for the common grace of the gift of good music, good movies, good art, but good gifts make poor gods. What about sex? Verse 8 again. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. The preacher and we can make the same conclusion about sex that we've been making about everything else. That there's nothing inherently wrong about sex. In fact, sex in its proper marital con context is one of the clearest pictures of the gospel that we have. But when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, we've got a problem. Maybe you've heard the quote wrongly attributed to G.K. Chesterton, paraphrases this, that every time a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he does so looking for God. Our lives, as each day reminds us, are so small, so meaningless, so insignificant, so boring, so monotonous. So in so many different areas of our life, including this one, we go on little God hunts, searching for joy, searching for transcendence. 
looking for something that will lift us out of the bogs of boredom, of smallness. We go looking for God. So we open our laptops and our phones for another hit of pornographic transcendence. We open the Tinder app the same way that we open the Trulia app, looking for just something out there that will finally give me satisfaction, meaning. We go to romance novels, we go to fantasization in our own imaginations about a life that is more exciting than the one that I'm stuck in. But here's the thing. Perhaps no one in the history of the world had a more sexually adventurous life than Solomon. 700 wives, 300 concubines. The, character, the Solomon character here in verse 10 says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. So after all of this, after this life of sexual adventure, looking back, the character can reflect upon this misaligned sexual desire, and like all of his other hunts for meaning and joy, it was just another desperate and panicked cup of sand for a thirsty man. So what's his conclusion about all these things? Verse 11, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. All of it was vapor, striving after the wind, pointless and impossible. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All of his, his, his experiences, all of his achievements, all of his gains and possessions, they're just vapor, just heaven. They're just the sun on its track around the world over and over and over again. None of it, none of the things that he can fill or try to fill his life with can stop the sands of time, can stop his death as much as we want all of those things to distractingly try. So he circles back around again. After all of that, he circles back around again to reflect on wisdom. And he concludes... Verse 13, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all. Wisdom is good, and as he'll later say in chapter, chapter 10, wisdom brings success. In chapter 7, it preserves life and protects, it gives strength. And then in chapter 8, wisdom even can bring joy. But the point is, is that time and death catch up to the wise and the foolish alike. We all die. We'll all become skeletons and then dust. Every single one of us. Like after a month or so, you would not be able to tell the difference in the remains of Gandhi or a homeless person. Solomon, Julius Caesar, Abraham Lincoln, Albert Einstein, they all turn to dust. Wisdom can't ultimately keep us from death, and in that sense, it's just as meaningless as the rising and the setting of the sun. It has meaning, but it can't anchor. It's just here, gone, and forgotten, the wise and the foolish alike. So the preacher stands up after looking at the ceiling for like the past hour or two, and he punches the wall. He's angry. Verse 17, he says, so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What's the point? 
Which now gets us to our last question. Will anything satisfy? Perhaps he's pacing around the bedroom with a fist of bloody knuckles. He's brooding, he's depressed, he's at the end of his tether. He's looking into space and nearly without hope and then perhaps he realizes the pronouns that he's been using over the past chapter. I, 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 me, my, mine, for me, I, my, me, I, my. He remembers, perhaps, that he's just another temporary creature under the sun. But then, he remembers the one over the sun. And his reflection moves from pessimism, from cynicism, to optimism and joy. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. He's able to just watch, to observe the world pass him by the sands of time, day after day after day, week after week, and year after year, and then just chuckle. He realizes that there will always be newer cars and newer houses and newer iPhones, and all of these things are fleeting and unsatisfying and are just but vapor. But he can enjoy them. He appreciates mountain hikes and city parks because he understands them to be what they are, as gifts from God. He can enjoy a good craft beer or a hilarious sitcom. He can enjoy an ever-growing and sanctified sexual desire to be enjoyed toward the end which God had created it within marriage. Because his hope and his satisfaction is in God, he can eat and he can drink and he can enjoy life. So the message here is twofold, writes Doug Wilson. God is the one who gives things, and God is the one who gives the power to enjoy things. These are distinct gifts. Things and the power to enjoy things. These are distinct gifts, just as a can of peaches and a can opener are distinct gifts. Only the first is given to the unbeliever, a can of peaches. The believer, though, is given both which is simply another way of saying that he is given the capacity for enjoyment. Like, can you enjoy a can of peaches without a can opener? Sure. It's a wonderful piece of art. <laughs> uh, you can put it on your, on your desk as a paperweight. You can roll it around with your kid, toss it like a ball, hope it doesn't explode. Uh, but only the person with the can opener can enjoy the can of peaches for the intent which it was made. If you're in Christ, if you're trusting in the tall and cool glass of lemonade, when we are all left to ourself, been drinking sand, if you're trusting in his life and his death to cleanse your conscience and to now provide meaning in his mission to make his kingdom known on earth as it is in heaven, then you've been given a can opener. As Christians, we understand that what is crooked cannot be made straight. This world, as Paul explains in Romans 8, has been subjected to futility, a word that is very close to vanity. The world is not able to do what it is meant to do. 
It groans and it longs for its redemption when life over the sun and life under the sun become one again. And then we groan and long with it. But Christians, knowing God, having their sins forgiven, having their hevel life anchored to the eternal, we can live a life of full joy, understanding the vanity of life, but just watching it pass by and chuckle. While chuckling, though, enjoying it, thinking deeply, reflectively, but not brooding and with despair. We can enjoy the fleeting gifts because we first enjoyed the giver. A few years back, I saw somebody write pagan tombstones. These are what pagan tombstones are all about. I was not, I was, I am not, and I don't care. There was a time that I didn't exist, then I existed, then I didn't exist, so I don't care. Christian tombstones, though, I was not, I am, I will be forever, and I care a great deal. Is your life anchored to something secure? Or are you just using the gifts that God has given you as paperweights? A fine use, but not for what it was intended to do. Would you be honest with yourself how the, how the little joy hunts, the God hunts, in your life are actually going if they're satisfying and keeping their promises? Like, can you sing with growing confidence, with growing joy as you experience God and have faith in his promises that here is love vast as the heavens, countless as the stars above, are the souls that he has ransomed, precious daughters, treasured sons. We are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time, Secured to the eternal, glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, now with man are intertwined. Now there's meaning. Now there's security. Because our lives are wrapped up and united in his. Even still, the preacher has perhaps raised more questions than he's answered. He would agree with the Westminster Confession that we professed together earlier that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But what about all of the evil in this world? What about all of the injustice at a neighborhood or a governmental level? Is God there? Does God care? Well, go ahead and read ahead. You can spoil it for yourself. And then don't miss the next three or four weeks as we get to the middle section of this book. The deep, deep questions of eternity, sovereignty, and meaning. Let's pray for our time for the rest of this book. Our Father, we are thankful for this book. We're thankful for its trueness, for its rawness, of its asking deep and existential questions of meaning. Father, we pray that we might be willing to perhaps leave the phone unlocked, to perhaps leave the TV off for an evening, and just to think, to read, to pray. Father, help us lift our eyes to Christ, fix our eyes on him, fix our faith, anchor our souls to him we pray. We pray that you would help us to enjoy the gifts that you have given and that you would unlock, you would open our ability to enjoy them because of our first and greater joy in you. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.